invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, it's on page 621 in my book. I don't know about y'all's. Um, this is a book, um, like I say, I've actually never preached through the book of Esther. Um, it is very, very interesting. And since we've been kind of talking about Jeremiah and Daniel, so we've kind of been talking about the exile, we've got a lot of the context actually built in for what, where, when Esther actually takes place. And so um, this is going to be, um, basically Esther covers a time period in, in Jewish history that is very sparsely documented. Um, when you look at the exile and the return from the exile, you've got books of the Bible that actually cover almost all of that time. And then we know that the Persians kind of came in and they kind of had loose control over Judea. Uh, but then Alexander the Great comes in and he establishes a Greek uh, dynasty. And that Greek dynasty, we have a lot of documentation in um, Jewish history books. They're not in the Bible, but they are Jewish history books. So we know what happened in those two time frames. But what happened while the Persians were in control, that's a part that we have very little about. And so Esther kind of stands in and fills in that gap and helps us to understand some things that we don't um, have a whole lot of other history about. So here's the things that we know. We know that the Babylonians came to Judea. Uh, it would have been called Judah at that time. And eventually, uh, over, over a course of maybe 20 years, they went from making uh, Ju Judah a vassal state where they, they, they had their own king, they lived in their own land, but they had to pay taxes or tributes to the Babylonians, to eventually the Babylonians conquered um, Judah. They, they destroyed Jerusalem completely, knocked down the walls, tore down the temple, uh, exiled most of the people brought them to Babylon. Now, that's kind of where uh, Jeremiah leaves us. And so then when we began to study in Daniel, what we saw is that the people then had to live in Babylon. Um, they stayed there for roughly 70 years. In that time, the Babylon Empire rose and fell. And when it fell, it, 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 it was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And at that particular time, the Persians were led by a king named, known as Cyrus. History calls him Cyrus the Great. Um, he was great because he was a great and mighty warrior. This was the very beginning of the Persian Empire. So at that time, they were warriors. They were deadly. Um, they, were, they were scary. They had some harsh tactics of things that they did. But what's interesting is Cyrus is always painted in a good light in the Bible because Cyrus is the one that issues the decree that allows the Jews to begin to return back to Jerusalem. He actually finances some of the work that happens in Jerusalem, the building of the wall, rebuilding of the temple. Cyrus is involved in some of those things. Well, if you don't read a book like Esther, what you think is that everybody left what was Babylon was then the Persian Empire. You think that everybody left there and just went back to Jerusalem, but that's not what happened. There were Jewish communities spread out all over what was now the Persian Empire, which had previously been the Babylonian Empire. And one of those communities of Jewish people were living in what would be the capital city for a little while in Persia, this Susa. And this is where the story that we're going to study takes place. It is in this capital city of Susa, part of the Persian Empire. Um, this is where we get this. Now, what we know from a lot of different empires, and, and, and Persia mimics this as, as well as any other empire, is that when an empire is forged, it is forged by warriors, generals, military leaders, and, 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 and military victories. 
But after it is established and it becomes an institution, it begins to be a lot more decadent and a lot softer. And so by the time of the reign of... Now, your Bible may have a different name for this king, but we're going to call him Xerxes, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, but by the time of the reign of Xerxes, the, the higher-ups, so your noble families, who were at one time families of military commanders, but they had earned and, and achieved certain greatness, and so they became noble families, or they were related to the royal family. So your nobles and your high-ranking officials, those people, lived in incredible luxury. If you were to put them on a battlefield, they would fall to pieces. They just were, they didn't have the same kind of toughness as the original founders of an empire would. And you can even kind of look at that in America today, whereas George Washington led his soldiers through the American Revolution. Can you imagine any you know, of our more recent presidents leading us into battle physically, riding a horse and giving us commands and things like that? That's not really their job or the scope of what they do anymore. So when we look at this Today, we are going to be looking at a group of Jews that didn't go back to Jerusalem. They stayed there. They would have continued living according to their Jewish culture. They would have continued to be following their religion. Remember, maybe you don't remember, but I'll tell you if you don't remember, um, during the exile is when we started seeing synagogues pop up. So you hear about synagogues in the, in the New Testament, and it's like they're like Jewish churches. They're places where people study the scriptures. They don't perform sacrifices. They don't do the things that you would do at the temple. But they do study the scriptures, and they worship, they pray, um, they gather together for community. Synagogues were a thing that would have been kind of all over the Persian Empire in smaller groups because that's where Jews were living. So they were maintaining their Jewish culture. Now, for some people, that was just kind of an anomaly. Um, but for others, it really, really upset them. And so one of the main uh, arcs in this entire story is that there's one man that is severely offended by the fact that Jews... We're still living like Jews in the Persian Empire. And so that's one of the big things that we'll be looking at there. Not everybody um, lived their, their religion or, or their culture so publicly that it was obvious. And that's also another thing that we're going to see with Esther. So the book of Esther records God's deliverance um, of his people who lived among the Persians. And again, God's name is not mentioned in this book, so we've got to kind of look for God. We've got to see what God's doing, and then once we do find what God's doing, it'll be easier for us to start paying attention to the world around us and see that God is still working, even though he may not be putting his name out the way that he might have in other stories. He may not part the Red Sea but you can, you, can, you can bet that he's controlling the currents that get you across it. And so that's, that's a little bit more like what the, the book of Esther is going to be about. So the kings um, of the Persians at this time, uh, or the king of the Persians at this time, um, your, your Bible may call him Asharius or something along those lines, um, but he is known to historians, and it was a Greek transliteration of his name, Xerxes. That's a lot easier for me to say, and so that's why I'm going to say Xerxes. And so if you've heard the old saying that the names have been changed to uh, protect the innocent, um, some of these names have been changed to protect the illiterate. There's some names in here that I can't quite say, and so I'll do my best, um, but I didn't study Persian in any of my educational um, uh, pursuits. So Esther is a young girl, um, and, and, and you don't even meet her in chapter 1, so we won't really meet Esther today, but she's a young girl. Uh, she was an orphan. Um, remember, war is going on all over the place, so it's not hard to become an orphan. So she was an orphan. She was raised uh, by Mordecai, who is going to be her uncle, that will, will, or actually cousin, I think, that we'll find um, a, a little bit later. 
Um, but she finds herself put in a perfect position to help in the deliverance of her people. But that's something that we won't see this chapter, but we'll see that this morning. We're going to study the events that actually opened the door for Esther to become the queen of the entire Persian Empire. So the sermon in the sentence is very, very short. Um, no power on earth is too great for our God to control. So whereas men play at power, men play at being gods, men play at having control over people's lives, God truly does. There's no power that God cannot steer in this world. Sometimes he does it from behind the scenes, which is the title of the sermon, and then sometimes he does it right out for everybody to see. So I'm going to read you chapter 1 here, and again, there's some names in the middle that I'll struggle with, but the story should be pretty easy for us to follow. It says, Now in the days of Xerxes, um, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media um, and the nobles and governors of these provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and velvet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars also and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And, drink, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king has given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man Desired. I'm going to break in here for just a minute. The way that my translation reads it, it's almost like, now we didn't force them to drink. That's not what this means. We never made them stop. That's what this means. You don't have to force men to drink. You have to force them to stop. And so that's, the king was just not stopping. There was, no, there was no ration of the wine. You could have as much as you wanted. That's, that's what the sense of this passage is here. Now, back in verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, uh, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Agvitha, Zelhar, and Karks, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being uh, Karshina, uh, Shethar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Murray's, Marcina and me, you can. Where's Beal at? 
Um, the, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mutkan said, the, uh, said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only, against the king, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Meucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Okay, so uh, we're going to start with, with lights. And so what we're going to look at first is kind of the setting. You know, lights come on, you can kind of see what's going on. We're going to look at the lights. We're going to look at what's actually going on here because the first several verses just kind of set things up for us. So during the time that this passage takes place, the Persian Empire was at the height of its power and its territory. It was a large empire. It was the largest empire um, in the world up to that point. Now, Alexander the Great would exceed that, but this was the largest empire the world had seen up to this point. It was powerful. It was wealthy. It was a thing to be feared. It was something that if, if people that were not part of the Persian empire or were not Persians, when the Persian empire came through, it seemed completely irresistible. It was the kind of empire that people thought, well, we're just going to be Persians now because there's no way we can fight against them. Whatever they tell us to do, we're going to have to accept that. So the Persians were smart enough to let people kind of keep some of their culture, some of their religious practices and things like that because they knew they'd be dealing with rebellions all the time otherwise. But those rebellions would have been futile anyway. And so the people kind of accepted the, the authority of the Persians, but the Persians were incredibly wealthy. This was, this was a time when if you wanted something, you took it. If you were powerful enough to take it, you could take it. And for the Persians, they were powerful enough to take anything they wanted, and so they had it. Now, everything that we consider the Middle East, so Iraq, um, and Afghanistan, Pakistan, all the way to India, including kind of northern Africa, um, so, so the parts of northern Africa that would become Muslim, so Egypt and Ethiopia, those kinds of areas, 
and all of Turkey, all the way to kind of the border of the Aegean Sea, essentially taking you into Greece, all of that belonged to Persia. It was a massive empire. In fact, if, if today somebody tried to build an empire like that, well, they did recently. It was Hitler. We didn't like that. And so that's the kind of empire we're talking about here. Massive empire. And not entirely different strategies, by the way. Um, so massive empire. History remembers these guys as the great. Cyrus the Great built this empire. Now we look at Hitler differently. We looked at Napoleon even differently about 200 years ago. We looked at what he was doing as a different thing altogether. It's not different. It's just that we have different understandings of what people should do. We don't think that people should conquer big chunks of the world anymore, but that's what they did. They had massive territory. They were very, very powerful. Um, the Persians divided uh, their holdings into provinces, and so they had smaller little provinces all throughout, um, and what would happen is there would be appointed rulers uh, who would be held accountable to the king. So these rulers would be called in to answer to the king for what they had been doing. This was one of the things the Persians were very interested in. One, it was absolutely forbidden in their laws to lie. They held honesty as the prime virtue. And so the, the authorities that were set over these provinces had to come to the king, give an account for everything they did. If they were caught in a lie, they would be executed. And so the, the, these, these provinces were ran according to the authority of the king because nobody was going to go against the king and nobody was going to lie and deceive the king. And so he had complete control over what was going on. So between the, the families of the nobility, the appointed, the appointed officials, the larger bureaucracy, there were thousands of people that would have probably been invited to Xerxes' party here. And, and just let me mention this. Um, it, it says in verse 4, uh, While he showed his riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of greatness for many days, 180 days, he threw a half a year party. He threw a party that lasted a half a year. And what's interesting is that wasn't enough because he threw an after party that lasted for seven more days. This was a crazy amount of expense. Think about this. Y'all go to the grocery store? Imagine having two extra people over for company. You've got to buy a lot more food, right? Because you don't want to run out. You don't want to embarrass yourself. Imagine inviting thousands of people and telling them they can stay half a year. Now, food is one thing, but he had to have enough wine for these people. Remember, he wasn't commanding them to drink, and he wasn't commanding them not to drink. So whatever people wanted to drink, whatever people wanted to do, that's what they did. Now, go to any event anywhere in any country where they provide food you'll find some folks that are saying they're just there for the food, right? Go to any event anywhere in the world and they have an open bar and guess what they'll say they're there for? They're just there for the drinks. That's the kind of party we had going. People were there for a half a year to eat and to drink and to celebrate the king. That's what this was all about. This was his own beauty pageant and he was the only contestant. That's what this was about. So the king was the center of everybody's attention. He was the center of everybody's world. Now, one thing that you have to understand about kind of the social structure in Persia is that the king was the only free person in the entire society. Literally everybody else was his slaves. That's the way that they viewed it. Now, they didn't treat them like, like the lowest of the low slaves, but you really weren't free. You really didn't own anything. You really couldn't make your own choices. Everything was by the king's leave. So if the king tells you to do something, you must do that thing. 
So this is his third year. King Xerxes has been king for three years, and he hosts this banquet. Um, now, again, this party lasted for, um, for, for half a year. No expense was spared uh, at this event uh, designed to display the brilliance of Persia. This was not just how great Xerxes is. This is how great Persia is. This was probably also done to help people understand that there was no reason to resist. There was no logical reason that they could ever resist Persia because they're so wealthy, they're so powerful, their military is so big, their, their, their king is so great. Um, many historians believe that the Persian kings talked about being deities themselves, talked about being gods themselves, and, and that is very, very likely. So, not only was the king in his full glory, but the queen Vashti, she was hosting a party as well for the leading women of the empire. So when you, when you hear about this year and a half, uh, or this half a year party, and you hear about the seven day after party, that was men were invited to that. And so the, the wives of these men were at Queen Vashti's party. Now, the Persian culture was, by today's standards, extremely conservative. Um, they, they did not mix a whole lot between men and women publicly. Um, the veils for women would have still been a thing. Um, polite society, things like that. So what we view as, as like a major party, it wasn't quite the same way. And so when we're thinking about this, we've got to realize that this would have been a party of men. Now, one thing that happened, and this is, actually, um, this is actually something that probably I need to say for the next point. Uh, I'll say that for the next point. So money was no object. Um, power, the power of the Persian Empire was, was literally visible. Normally, power is just something, influence is something that you hear about and you see what it's done. Here, the power was literally visible, um, and no one present would doubt the glory of Xerxes. That's the whole point. That's not just the point of what Xerxes wants to, to accomplish here. That's the point of the writer of Esther. It, what, we want it to be clear. The, the writer wants it to be clear, and it should be clear to us that there was no power on earth like Xerxes at that time. That's what we want to know. That's what we want to see. That's the whole point of this. Now, it's hard to imagine splendor like this in today's world. Um, but we know that it's there. We know that there are people that are wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. Um, we were talking about in Sunday school, Elon Musk is now one of the wealthiest people that's ever lived. Uh, and it, and <laughs> half of it happened this week. And so we know that things can change. People can be this incredibly wealthy. They can be incredibly powerful. It's, it's hard for us to see it because most of the world seems normal to us. And then there are some things that just kind of are, are far beyond the stratosphere that, that we might see. But I will say this, as long as there has been wealth, there have been people who believed that it made them untouchable. Xerxes probably believed that he was completely untouchable. No one could manipulate him. No one could control what he was going to do next or what would happen. Nobody had power or authority over him. He was the king as far as he was concerned of the world. They, they called themselves king of kings. And so for them, they were the rulers of everything. As believers... We should not revel in the power of money. We should not look at the power of the world, but take our joy in the strength of the Lord to control every outcome. Is there power on this earth? Yes. Is money power? Yes, it really is. Um, th there are all kinds of factions that control some a little bit of power and some a whole lot of power. And, and, and I would go so far as to say that probably the most power in the world is wielded that we don't see. It is also behind the scenes. But what I mean to tell you this morning is that behind those scenes is God, and he is in control. 
and he has authority over all the powers of this world, and what he wants to have happen will happen. So let's look at the next thing. So the next point, camera, lights, camera, action. You can kind of see where this is going. Um, so the, the next part, everything comes into focus in this passage when Xerxes issues a command for Queen Vashti to parade herself before the guests of the banquet. Okay, so this, this banquet, again, going on half a year, and then the, the after party for seven days, everybody is happy with wine, whatever that means, let the reader understand, and so they are having a good time. Now, another thing that you should understand, and this is what I was going to say a while ago, is that the king would have had a very large harem. The harem would have been less favored wives, not queens, but less favored wives and concubines. These would have been slaves that were also something like wives to the king. They would have been the ones that would have been present at this party the whole time. Those are the women that would have been there. Women that would have been there. They would have been singing. They would have been dancing. They would have been engaging in conversation. They would have been the entertainment at this party. And so they are the lesser women. Again, conservative society. It wouldn't have been like anything you would have seen or imagined in Greece or Rome. They would have been more conservative. They believed themselves to be civilized. But that's what would have been going on. And so Vashti, being the queen, being the highest among all of the king's wives, was asked to come into that setting. Now, we don't know if Vashti was simply stubborn or it was her sense of propriety that led her to refuse the king. Uh, and we do know that the king's request for her to come in was a break from their custom because he was actually asking her to appear unveiled, to, to appear without her veil so that the world could see her beauty. That was important for her, so in, in front of a large group of men. So for whatever reason, Vashti decides to disobey this command from the king. There's no way, absolutely no way, she doesn't know that this is the end of her run as, as being queen. When, when she says no, she is sticking to her culture, she is sticking to her principles, she is, or, or she's just being stubborn, whatever, I'm not going to go in front of a whole bunch of drunk men right now. Whatever it is, she has to know that she is taking her life in her hands. Xerxes was actually known to be pretty cruel, and so how he handles this is, is really quite a surprise, um, just in, in my own opinion. Um, the king, um, he had displayed his power. He had displayed this beautiful furniture. He had all these clothes. He had all this food. He had all this wine. So he wanted for himself, this was a selfish move, he wanted for himself the last crowning achievement was that he had the most beautiful wife in all the land and he wanted her to be seen so when she says no not only is she refusing the king or disobeying a direct command but she's also not giving him what he wants and so between the two very very um difficult things there it doesn't look good. So Xerxes is actually painted in a favorable light in this book. In fact, most commentators say that he is, a, he is like a, a, a shadow or a representation of God in this book. Um, but still, he was not pleased. Um, it's obvious that he was consumed with vanity, and he will not accept the queen's refusal. He just flat out will not accept this. Um, Vashti had been taught from her childhood that her beauty was for her husband and him alone. That's what she had been taught. So, so that probably had to play into her choice. 
And I'll be honest with you, it is surprising that Xerxes did not just have her executed on the spot. We're, we're told that he becomes furious and that he burns with anger. So it's saying two different things here. Furious is immediately, I'm very, very angry. Burning with anger is one of those things that you fume over for a very, very long time. So some things make you mad, and as soon as you kind of get over it, it's, it's done. And some things you chew on for the rest of the day. And Xerxes was chewing on this one for a while. He was angry. He was burning with anger. And it's surprising again that he did not have her executed. But for some way, some miracle, he did not have her executed, at least so far as we know. Um, and as much as this might appear just to be a lover's quarrel, where husband wants one thing, wife goes a different way, and, and that's what the fight is all about, we must immediately begin to see God's hand orchestrating these events as a way to open up the door for Esther because that's what God is doing there. God is opening this door. This, this woman, whatever else she was, she was not a God-fearing woman, not in the way that we would understand. She stuck to her principles, but at the same time, how many people would have done that? How many people would have stuck to their principles knowing that if they stick to their principles, they're going to probably die, and that death may even be horrible? The Persians were very creative with killing people, so it would not have necessarily been a quick death for her. How many people would have done that? I almost believe that God gave her that courage, not, not that, that, that she was a believer in God, but God gave her that courage just so that she could make this stand so that the door would be open for God's plan. It doesn't seem normal for a woman to refuse the king of all kings at that particular time. You know, it is difficult for us to look around this world today, the things that are going on, and say, yeah, God's clearly in control. When we, when we look, I mean, it's more, more easy for us to say, yeah, evil is clearly winning. It's easier for us to say those things. But I tell you, God is in control. Evil appears to be winning, Truth seems to be vanishing. Even appreciation for truth seems to be vanishing. And righteousness is all but an afterthought. Whatever, whatever goes, goes. That seems to be the way of the world right now. You, you, can't, you can't say this is bad or this is wrong. You can't say we shouldn't do this. There's none of that. Whatever a person wants to do, that's their journey, that's their business, and you say nothing about it. That seems to be the way of the world. But God is still in control. God still has His hands in this world orchestrating things the way that he wants them to be done. And you say, well, well, I don't see it. Well, that's one of the purposes of the book of Esther is so that we can look at what God did here and we can see, was there evil going on? They had a party for half a year. Yes, there was probably evil going on. What, what was, there, was there vanity? Was there pride? Absolutely there was vanity and pride. Were there things going on that would have went against the Old Testament law? Well, nearly everything goes against the Old Testament law. So yes, absolutely there was. But God was still in control. Because God was working towards a deliverance. Because what you don't know in chapter 1 is that whether this happens or not, there's going to be a plot against the Jews. There's going to be a time in which the Jews living in this place are in danger and God is already preparing a way to deliver them. So the world seems to be overloaded with problems, but we must remember that God is in control and no situation is too great for Him. So now let's look at the action. So lights, camera, action. What is the action that the king took? What did he actually do? The queen's disobedience could not go unanswered, so King Xerxes summons wise men from his kingdom to decide what must be done. 
he had wise men right there. Just so happens he had a whole gathering. Like literally everybody that's an expert on anything was at this party. So he was able to get a very well-reasoned and thought-out response. And what did the men think? If you let one woman get away with it, all of them are going to do it. That was what they said. They said it a little bit more eloquently than that, but that's the idea. If you let one woman disobey, every woman's going to be disobedient. The whole world is going to be turned upside down. That's what they believed. So the king is told that this rebellion has far-reaching ramifications because now every husband is going to deal with a wife that's not going to do what he says to do. And, and so that's basically how they convince him to make this decree. Now, the, the king's decree is final but measured as a judgment against Vashti. This is what's interesting, again, to me, uh, you know, just knowing th some things from history about Xerxes, it is very surprising um, that, that she was not executed. She'll never be allowed to enter the king's presence again, and her position of queen would be taken and given to someone who is better than her. That's what the Bible says, better than her. Uh, so that can mean more obedient. Uh, and it can mean more beautiful, and probably both things are intended when it's actually said. Now, here's the thing. Vashti would have probably lived out her life in isolation. Her life may not have been all that long. We don't know. But the thing is, once you've been married to the king, you can't go marry somebody else. This was not a divorce. Don't, don't misunderstand. He wasn't divorcing her. He was just kind of out, making her an outcast. She probably had to stay within the, the realm of his harem, but she would have been lowered to a level to where she would never be brought back into the presence of the king again. So this is a, this is a pretty rough ending for her, but not as bad as maybe it could have been. So these advisors, once again, they believe that once word of Vashti's rebellion got out, all the women would begin to rebel against the men. They would begin to disobey their husbands. Um, it, it's one of those things that, you know, it's just kind of like taking everything all the way to the end. That's what they did. But see, this event here, this is what opens the door for Esther to come on the scene. And it's not an, attributed to the Lord. The Bible doesn't say that, you know, the, the Lord caused Vashti to stand against the king here. But God used this event to make the deliverance possible. So I haven't really told you what the deliverance is. If you've read ahead, you know eventually there's a plot against the Jews. Many of the Jews could be killed, but Esther is there to speak to the king in favor of the Jews. And that's kind of the plot summary that's going on here. So Esther has to have an audience with the king. And as a woman, there would be only one way for her to have an audience with the king, and that's for her to become queen. No other woman was going to be able to approach the king in any way, shape, or form. And so this was her opportunity. So... It seems so simple and predictable for a pagan king to strike out against his disobedient wife, but we know that God will use Esther to deliver her people. That's the thing that, that we get from this. That's the thing that we see. So God may be using simple, predictable, even mundane events in your life now to prepare you for something greater. That's what we take from chapter 1. Because a wife disobeys her husband in ancient times. His reaction is very predictable. It could have happened a hundred times and a hundred times the, wife would have, the, the husband would have acted out against the wife in some way. So it was a predictable thing. Just because what happens in this world is predictable does not mean it's not part of God's designing, part of God's plan. So when we, when we look at our world today, and, and you, I may be talking about like your family. You may look at the interactions within your family. You may look at the interactions at your work. You may look at the interactions among maybe your friends, or we may be talking about national and even globally. There are things that are going to happen that are incredibly predictable. That doesn't mean that it's not part of God's plan. So when we, we look at things, and we could start naming off all kinds of problems that are going on with the world today. How does, how do, how does God fit into this? What is God doing? Well, it is important for us 
Remember the New Testament tells us to stay vigilant, to stay awake, to stay aware. We've got to be looking for God's hand in this world, what he might be doing. Never forget that God is in control and never doubt his power to achieve his purposes. Now let me tell you, if, if you have been living these last two years and you don't know that this world seems to be spiraling out of control, maybe you haven't turned on the news. But the encouraging word is that God is still in control. He has a plan. Up to this point, maybe we don't know that whole plan. We don't know what he's doing. But I can tell you that even in the midst of this, we can see ways that he has provided for us, that he has protected us. There's going to come a point in this story when someone that believes in God is going to have to make a stand. And I would tell you, that in our world today, with everything seemingly spiraling out of control, but we know that God's in control, there's going to come a point where Christians have to make a stand. Not a political stand, not some nationalistic stand, but a stand for Jesus himself. There will come a day when we have to do that. And I just want to encourage you, when that day comes, God will have set everything in motion for you to be in the perfect position to make that stand. So make the decision now that you will stand for Jesus when you are called to stand for Jesus so that when that time comes, you've already decided. You've decided that you will stand for him. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to gather together to spend a few minutes in your word. And as we looked into an ancient pagan kingdom with all of its pomp and circumstance, with all the money all the food, all the furniture, all the clothing, all the things that mankind views as important. In a way, it seems so far away from us, but in a way, it seems just like our world today. The one thing we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is constant, is that you were in control then, and you are in control now. You are working out your plan in this world. Father, I pray that you help us to have that confidence I pray that you also help us to have an awareness that we watch what is happening, that we look for you, that we look for what you are doing. Lord, we know that, that you couldn't care less about Republicans or Democrats, progressives, liberals, conservatives. You are concerned with proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified because all the problems that the world thinks they have, there is no problem like sin. And sin puts us squarely in the center of your judgment. And so, Father, I pray that we as believers, every chance we get, will boldly stand, no matter what the social consequences might be, and proclaim Jesus, for he is the way of salvation. And, Father, we know that just as you delivered the Jews in the story of Esther, you will have many people on this earth that you will deliver and instead of one queen standing up and speaking for all of them, you have called all of us to stand up and be witnesses. And so, Father, I pray that as you have been preparing circumstances, you also prepare our hearts for that day. Make us resolute so that we will not waver when our time comes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.